Hello, everyone. Hi, ladies. Hi, friends. And welcome, listeners, to another episode of CNUSD Ed Chat. Now, this week, we interview Sylvia Dorte Duque Reyes. We met up with Sylvia at the California Association of Teachers of English Conference in San Diego this last spring. Now, a quick side note about the Kate Conference. This is one that we highly recommend all teachers to attend at least once in their life. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Sylvia. Sylvia Dorta Duquete Reyes served as a member of the expert panel for the development of the ELD standards. She is a well-known national consultant in the areas of curriculum design, staff development, parent involvement, and very much still a teacher at heart. Now, she also served on the California ELA-ELD Framework Committee, which is one of my favorite documents. And these are just a few of her many credentials. Hold on, you both just said a lot of jargon there. Can you please explain this further? Oh gosh, okay, sorry about that. So in this interview, you'll hear a reference to the ELD standards. That stands for the English Language Development Standards. These are the expectations and outcomes for teaching the English language in California. And you'll also hear a reference to the ELA ELD framework. Now, that is California's English language arts and English language development framework. And this document shares pretty much the vision and goals for California public education. And she'll provide some more insight into the access and equity chapter. That is chapter nine, one of my favorite chapters. And you'll also hear the term dual immersion. And dual immersion is basically when a student is enrolled in a program where they're learning content in more than one language. And our dual immersion program is one of the highlights of our district. Okay, got it. Thank you, ladies. So let's jump right into Kate's first question for Sylvia. When I last heard you speak about chapter nine of the framework, mm-hmm. your enthusiasm mm-hmm. uh, was so infectious. Why should educators read chapter nine of the framework? What's in it? Um, yes, well, I think that chapter nine is a groundbreaker. It is really putting us into a new awareness in education. Um, It is fundamental to what guides the entire framework, actually. Calling out that schooling um, that helps all students achieve their highest potential. We, We need that. And in order to do that, you really need to be equitable. You need to treat each student as an individual. You need to have recognize who they are and accept who they are and bring forth the best in them. So chapter nine starts talking about, you know, the hard talk. What about when the student's culture, when their their background is, is so different than the teachers that are serving them? Um, it, it's hard. It's something that we need to all become more culturally aware, multicultural, recognize different values in society, recognize why they are that way. And chapter nine helps us, helps guide that. And it calls for teachers to be reflective and critically examine and transform our own practices so that we can actually reach the students. And, you know, the relationship between teachers and students is a real close one. And you can make or break an individual. Again, we're talking about all students' potential. We want teachers to be sensitive, to to recognize value in all students. And, you know, you would think that that would be of course, but it's easier said than done because we're all human beings. The, the chapter also points out that it's not just left to an individual teacher, it's, it's all of us collectively that need to become more aware 
And as we become more aware, the students also become more aware because it's a student-teacher relationship, but it's also about student-to-student relationships. If they see us modeling respect, they will be respectful to one another. And I think that that is, if I had to wrap it up in one word, it would be respect. Well, I know that chapter nine on equity and access is a must read for Cronenorco USD. So what are other must do's for schools and districts in their efforts to provide greater equity and access for their students? One of the must do's, the first must do has to be let's, you know, organize study groups around that chapter, you know, and it can be done simply. Just let's read the chapter. Mm -hmm. Let's read and respond to it. It could be done in a way that that students can respond online if you want to do that online. It could be um, after every staff meeting, just a little paragraph and let's respond to it. Um, it. It could be something that we collectively you know, recognize our practices. Are we doing this? Are we doing enough of this? Um, and and just suggest little areas of improvement, little things at a time. I know that Corona Norco, of course, has organized a very successful district conference around mm-hmm. the Chapter 9. I mean, so that's another amazing thing to organize um, a conference around that chapter so that you have workshops that actually address the chapter and address solutions and and identify resources for teachers. That's that's very important. Of course, examining the, the curriculum. There were workshops on, on just here's our curriculum for math, here's our curriculum for language arts. Let's see what are the opportunities for access and equity here. So that was very important. Um, districts can also, of course, institutionalize policy. Um, I think that we have to go to the governance level on that one because, you know, you can have, you can say to teachers, do this, do that. You can say to students, do this, do that. But really, a district is serious when they institutionalize policies that affirm the values of multiculturalism, bilingualism, um, respect. There's, for biliteracy, there's the seal of biliteracy given to students who are highly proficient in English and any other word language at the time of um, graduation. The anti-bullying programs and consequences, those need to be institutionalized. I think that districts also have to create networks with community agencies that that are already there in the community and that they offer certain social services when a teacher is aware that that a, that a student has a certain need, they can actually go to the agency and, and provide those needs, whether it's medical, dentist, whether it's social of some sort, whether it's religious, whatever it is. I think that districts need to network with their communities. You know, I, I know that chapter one, ha- chapter nine has um, a section on students living in poverty. Sometimes we don't know but there are students living in cars and we don't know it until like weeks later. And so things like that, we have to be aware of it. And then when we, re- when we identify or recognize that there's something happening, we need to take action. We need to take action right away. Um, so having this type of policies in place and having these networks in place uh, will really help teachers serve the students. 
Because teachers are like right there. They're the first line. They're the first ones who notice things. But sometimes you go home and you just go, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm noticing this. Is Charles acting different? But what, what can I do? You know, and two or three days go by. And, and, and if, if a teacher does not know that they can go into the office and say, hey, I'm looking at this, I'm suspicious of this, and, and really get back up right away, then, then we don't have an um, optimal system. So that's chapter nine. It includes institutionalizing process and process, policy and procedures for, um, for a support system for all of us. The other thing is, of course, communication with parents, because the parents are the other front line. If, if they need something, they should be able to, um, to come to the school and come to a teacher and, and know that they are going to be respected and that they are going to be able to count on the school district to be helpful, not to attack or to be another obstacle. So that's, that's chapter nine. I think it's very embracing of a multiculturalism and it's very embracing of the people we serve, the students we serve and their parents. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit um, because you work a lot with the ELD standards and English right. language right. learners. How we support English language learners is a prominent component of the California ELA ELD framework. And how has support for English language learners in California changed over the last 10 to 15 years? You know, I think that that change has probably been the most significant overall change in the framework. Previous frameworks did not even consider English language development. They thought of it as something that either belonged in special ed, I, I lived those days, or something that, yeah, it's related to English, but it's not English, so it would be a separate subject somewhere with a separate curriculum. And so um, what, what happened is that we, we were able to create this vision of that English language development is part of English language arts. And because of the demographics, because we saw there are so many students in California that need English as a second language, we needed to provide the support for the teachers and the students. So we came up with the ELA ELD framework. And that is really groundbreaking. ELD instruction is no longer marginalized. It is part of what we do every day, and, and these techniques are part of what we um, have to embrace, right? So the mainstream consciousness fell under a spell during 227, remember that? Mm -hmm. And it was a complete disaster. It imposed the ideas that students could only learn in English and that even when they did not know English, they had to learn English in one year. Well, that created you know, uh, that created the long-term English learners. I call them the uns children. You know, for 10 years, we actually incurred these deficits, these cognitive deficits in children. So that the outcome was that you had children that, yeah, they, they, learned, they learned English, but then there were some of these, these cognitive gaps so that they don't know enough English to deeply no academic English or academic subject areas. So that was, that was terrible. 
Thankfully, the tides have changed, and now we have a framework that includes Chapter 2, which defines the context for ELD instruction, both integrated throughout the curriculum and throughout the day, and then designated where students who need a more help with English are able to work together and, and really explore how English works. I also think that for the past 10 and 15 years, teacher preparation programs have really embraced English learners. So we have actually learned a lot about ELD, and I think that the framework reflects all of that. It has done a lot also to guide publishers to develop materials that include integrated ELD and also provide um, that scaffolding needed for designated ELD or additional help when a student doesn't know the English language and they still have to learn that content in English. Um, so now I'm going to ask you for our parents and families, can you tell us about the ELD standards and what are they and what place do they have in instruction? Um, yes, the California ELD standards are amazing because they're very simple, they're very elegant, and they really help guide ELD instruction. The ELD standards really only have two parts. The first part is about learning how to communicate in English, um, using English to collaborate, doing classroom work with your, with your you know, classmates, um, using English to interpret what you read and what you listen, and using English to produce language. So the first part is about communication. Then the second part is about how English works. And you study the, the structure of the language from the words to the sentences to the whole text. You study um, that language can be expanded by adding the different parts of speech and their functions. And then you, add, you also learn that language can be contracted through also the parts of speech. So again, you're communicating in this language, but you're looking at how the words work within that language. So it's a combination of using the language and learning the structure. So it's communication and pretty much grammar and structure of the language. They are pretty simple. You know, teachers and parents need to keep in mind that, that the students are wanting to use the language, so they, you want to see them use the language, and at the same time, you're going to want to teach them a little bit about the structure and how that language works. And you have to do it in context, see? That's the big difference, because, you know, before it used to be that your language arts classroom was studying about, let's say, whatever, a piece of literature, fables. And then all of a sudden in ALD, you had a different curriculum and they were studying like farm animals and the name of the farm animals and things like that. And so now we have, here we're studying about fables and then for ELD, we're studying how the language in, the, in, in those fables work. You also have much expertise in dual immersion and biliteracy. And for our listeners who may not know what those terms are, what is dual immersion? What is biliteracy? Are they different? And then what is the role of dual immersion programs or biliteracy programs in 21st century education? The dual language is at the forefront of 
education um, here in California and actually in the rest of the nation. Without a doubt, you need to know English and you need to know English well. But when you know English and any other world language, you have to know that it's a great personal, social, and economic advantage. That is like in this 21st century, that, that, is a, um, that, that is almost a must. And so many, student, many studies show that people who um, know two or more languages have not only greater cognitive capacity, but they have um, a higher um, level of executive abilities, such as problem solving, planning, remembering. And these reports have been made public now. They've been made public in not just educational journals, but newspapers and magazines. So I think that the general public is understanding the idea that everybody can have English and any other world language they choose. And they're also realizing that you don't have to lose your primary language or your home language in order to learn English. So I think that it's wonderful that we're we're coming to that consciousness. The other thing that has um, generated a lot of interest and a lot of positive response towards the dual language programs is that many, many districts consistently show that students in the dual language program outperform other students in state tests. In this accountability era where we're looking so much at data and, and testing, when, when, you know, can you imagine your district people looking at the data and then they see that consistently the kids that are coming from this program by third and fourth grade outscore everybody else? It definitely turns, turns your head, you know? That's another, naturally, parents want children in programs that show this. Again, there's many paths to biliteracy. Some students start to learn two languages formally in kindergarten. Others begin in junior high because it really takes seven years to, to actually learn a, a language to a proficiency level. So you could have those first seven years starting in kindergarten, or you could do those seven years starting in middle school because then you can take the language that you already have and that helps you learn your second language. So really there's many paths to biliteracy. Um, being exposed to another language also helps you become tolerant of ambiguity. It helps you seek meaning and, and most of all it increases social skills. Students in dual language programs learn to get along and help each other. That is really the first thing that, that the programs really wanted to achieve. They wanted to achieve that, that the mixing of the kids so that they would uh, learn how to tolerate not knowing something and finding the answers and, and trying to communicate um, and seeing that they can communicate and learning how to get along. Can you imagine? Learn to respect each other's needs, each other's ways, each other's ideas. So that's really going back to that chapter nine, isn't it? They also become more accepting, more compassionate, and more understanding. And they become really, really good friends, these kids. The 21st century skills includes the four C's, right? Creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, and communication. Learning two language fosters these skills. And we're in the information age, so knowing two languages squares our ability to seek information and get information. And you know how it is. Knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. So times two.
So you're saying that um, a student can enter a dual immersion program in seventh grade and still be well, successful the, the, as, when, as a kindergartner? You, well, yeah, yeah. Wow. When, when, you, when you are a seventh grader, you can actually start taking foreign languages. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we also have to institutionalize policies that say, okay, in seventh grade, start taking your Spanish one or your French one or whatever, because you go, you know, you take... Um, let's say Spanish one, Spanish two, right? Seventh and eighth. Mm-hmm. By ninth grade, you can actually start taking your AP language. Oh. You see, so if you so move it that way, yeah, you can you can prepare that road, and then what happens is that by junior high, you start taking other courses in Spanish or in that language, like history, or you can do um, Spanish business language or things like that. So, so th- there's many possibilities, and, and schools are working it out where you can actually, you know, start learning the language early, right? Mm-hmm. And then m- move into even higher registers of that language, like business English or business Spanish. What are the go-to resources that you recommend for teachers and families for greater support or knowledge about dual immersion? Okay, so I have... Uh, my favorite websites, like one that's really famous and everybody loves is Colorín Colorado. It's a website. It's in English and in Spanish and it's dedicated to language learners. And it's funded by the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. So it's really beautiful. It's full of tips for parents, for teachers. Um, it features books, strategies, lessons. It gives you, it gives you um, research, research studies. It summarizes the research studies for you. And it's always uh, updated. The other incredible resource is the Center for Applied Linguistics. Now, this is where you get all the resources that you need to um, to have a dual language program and to establish a dual language program, and all the re- all the resources and all the research behind it. They're the ones who um, sort of created the dual language principles, and they have rubrics for monitoring the progress of of the of the program and to enhance it. Um, they have all kinds of very detailed information about, you know, the, the looks for in, in, in a good dual language program. So that's the Center for Applied Linguistic, their website. And of course, another very important resource for us in California is the California Association of Bilingual Education website. Again, it has a lot of information for parents, for teachers. It has a lot of resources. Um, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's a great resource for teachers and parents. We have a segment we call Tomorrow, This Week, This Month. Our question is, with so many changes to 21st century education and learning, what advice can you give to teachers or families to try tomorrow, to try this week, and to try this month? I remember getting the Walt Disney, this is like what you want to do tomorrow. Okay. You know, go to the red boxes, the Netflixes, whatever, the TVs, and you get... Um, the Disney movies in Spanish. Okay, there you go. And it's hilarious. You get to sing along with all the princesses, and they have all of that. And you get to, uh, my favorite's Lion King, for mm-hmm. sure, of all the Disney movies. So, you know, you're like really happy singing along Hakuna Matata mm-hmm. with Pumba and Simon. And, mm-hmm. 
and of course Simba. And and you're doing it in Spanish. So it's hilarious. And the kids, they love it. They because they already know Lion King, let's say in English. Mm-hmm. So when they see it in Spanish, they're going, Hey, I'm getting it. I get, right. I get what I'm doing. So that's like a tomorrow fun thing to do. More family movie nights. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, movie nights. Then the other neat thing to do is, you know, these 21st century skills and 21st century students, they are digital, man. Those mm-hmm. kids are digital. You start looking Google Translate. Start translating things like, you know, good morning, good afternoon, nice to mm-hmm. meet you, want to play. Translate that in different languages. It's so much fun. The first introduction to any language has to be this wonderful social language that, that um, is the language of friendship. So use the devices to find out how do you say this? How do you say this in English? How do you say this in Spanish? The kids love doing it. I know my children would love that. Yeah, they, they look up all kinds It'd of be stuff. It's so much fun. Yes, like how do you say tomato? You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you want to start with the thinking functions. So the first thinking function is to observe, right? So invite your students, your children or students, to observe anything. Then the second one is to describe the object. Then the next thing is to compare and contrast it with something else. Then the other idea is to then um, go ahead and associate it with different things. Then use that, use that object or whatever it is. Think of different uses for it. Things that promote thinking functions are really fun to do and they can be, they can be games. And the rule there is when the students, when the kids start getting tired, you stop. But it's really neat to, um, to engage the students in thinking. For the week, I think that, you know, going to the library and, and just looking at the books, just being in the library, um, like if it was a field trip of some sort, and take out a book. Take out a book in English and in Spanish. Compare them. You know, notice, notice how they're the same. Notice how they're different. This is a, a metalinguistic strategy called noticing. You know, when you take something in, in, let's say, English, and you take something in another language that is parallel, and you start comparing and contrasting, you really catch a lot of how the two languages work. I mean, try it sometime. It's really that fun. That is very doable. Yeah, it's so doable, right? Another thing is, uh, and this I love playing with my kids, and, you know, when you're in the car and stuff, you take an object, and you say, okay... Use this object in a different way. How would you use it in a different way? Mm -hmm. And then you start analyzing the object. What is it made out of? Where do those parts come from? Like a pencil, it used to be a tree because it's wood, right? Where is it made? How do they get the lead lead in there? You know, uh, what is the, the eraser made out of? Little things like that, just questioning around an object. And then for that 21st century skill, what you want to say to that child is, how would you improve it? Hmm. What else could you do? Who uses this pencil? Who can't use the pencil? And how could you help them use the pencil? I have, you know, I did that with a pencil at a, at a I think it must have been a kindergarten or first grade class. And the next day, the student came and said, teacher, I did an invention. And I said, wow, show me. What is it? (laughs) And the child said, look, you can put a rubber band around the pencil and you can, it helps you hold the pencil. I'm going, good for you. That's a great idea. Um, 
And before I even said, what made you think of that? Or, or, or that's good because you can hold the pencil in your hand. And he says, you know, because my little sister, she moves her hand too much. Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out that her, her little sister was challenged, you know, and she said, and she moves her hand too much and she can't hold the pencil. And now I created something that helps her hold the pencil. Wow. Yeah, and he added, and it worked for crayons too. <laughs> I go, good for Using you. Using his creativity to his solve creativity, a real world problem. A real world problem in, in service mm-hmm. of humanity, in service of someone else. Because he was he was motivated by love, he was motivated by a higher common good. That's the consciousness of the 21st century students. For the month, again, you know, visit a library or a museum. Um, I, I think that, you know, things that are long-term, and I know that a month is a long-term for any student. Um, so start collections, you know, buttons, leaves, uh, pencils, coins, stamps. Um, Get information about that object that you're collecting. Uh, just get a shoebox and start putting things in there. Collect things. Uh, take a walk. Take time to take a walk. Take pictures. You know, take pictures of the trees now that we have the digital cameras. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, before it used to be that, you know, taking pictures was, oh, my gosh, you got to take a picture. You have to go to the mm-hmm. pharmacy. You got to go, you know, all of that hassle, right? Now you just take a picture and download them. The students can create these collections you know, digital collections of things that they see um, around their environment. Then, you know, like the different flowers and then look them up in the internet. You can also do virtual things like collect uh, pictures of uh, an animal that you love, whether it's a, um, I don't know, a leopard or whatever it could be. Um, and try to see what the different types of leopards in the world and, and where they live and what they do. Um, take up a project with a friend. That's the other good idea to collaborate because taking up a, a, a project on your own is like, okay, you do it. But when you're doing it with a friend, that's collaboration. That's a 21st century skill. You really need to negotiate. You really need to come to consensus on certain things. So bring a friend along with that. And it's always a lot more fun. Invent something. Oh my gosh, invent something. You know, you have kids inventing things and encouraging them to take something that already exists and make it better. So that would take a month. Create videos. Again, you know, you have these digital cameras, you have these phones that, you know, you you can share with the students or with your children and, and go out and explore the world. And then you can always see what they, how they are looking at the world. So part of this is, is also to me for the parents is bringing that relationship closer between you and your children. You know, um, taking advantage of this digital age to see what your kids are interested in. You know, go explore the world and then bring it back to me. Let me see what you're doing. Let me see what you're thinking. You would be surprised how they really look at the world with different eyes. Um, the other idea that's always fabulous is the arts. Create a song, dance, create a dance, get some sort of handkerchief and, you know, jump around. Um, do it with the kids, have them do it themselves, listen to music and follow that music. Um, learn your children's intelligences and, and, and really nurture that, you know, in, in, at home. 
Um, the big idea is to promote creativity and to get into the habit of innovation, mm-hmm. to looking at the world and creating. I think that that is um, the spirit of the 21st century, that there is no boundary and that we all create to make a better world. Thank you, Sylvia, for sharing your knowledge and passion. I loved all the advice that she gave at the end of her interview. I'm definitely going to be starting a Spanish movie night. How do you all say Moana in Spanish? You know what? I wonder if it's too late for me to learn a second language. Well, you could just join Kim's family movie night. I'm totally there. I got to start somewhere and I will bring the popcorn. A new episode of CNUSD EdChat is available each month. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for extra content. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes, please, please, please share them with an educator or a family member. Hi, I'm Harper. I'm and I'm in kindergarten. Thank you for listening to CNUSD Chat. See you next time. Want to hear your student or child on a future episode? We are looking for kids to record our next kids outro. Read from our script available at www.cnusd.k12.ca.us slash edchat. We even have a script for younger children. Just submit the audio file to our Google Drive folder. We'll see you next time. Take care. This episode of CNUSD EdChat was written and produced by Kate Jackson, Ivy Yule Eldridge, Anne-Marie Cortez, and me, Kim Kemmer, and edited by Ken Pucci.